make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began our very last sermon series for the church's calendar year. If you've ever wondered when the church's calendar year finishes, it finishes the week before Advent. And if you'd like to know any more about the church's calendar, uh, then this coming Tuesday, I'm deputising for uh, Graham Leo for a big questions evening on the church's calendar. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? I'm pumped. (laughs) Uh, The letter to the Hebrews is what we're looking at um, over the next number of weeks. Um, And it's an amazing piece of work filled with lots of strong themes and imagery. Last week, Dale revealed to us the dominant theme throughout this letter, Jesus. The person, the power, and the teachings of Jesus should ever be before us. We should be constantly wrestling, digging deeper, being challenged and confronted, striving to get that Jesus part of our faith as strong, as informed, and as developed as it could be. And this is a whole of life project. There is always possibility for more of Jesus. And we can never have too much of a Jesus focus. So unsurprisingly, today I'm going to continue to preach about Jesus. But as I do, I'm going to to look at two of the other big themes of this letter. Um, The Word of God and Jesus, the great high priest. The passage that um, Anne read for us today can seem like two separate sections. And in my Bible, um, there's actually sub, a subheading in between verse 13 and 14, encouraging me to stop thinking about the rest that God promised and to start to think about Jesus, the, the great high priest. But in the original Greek, there were no subheadings. Uh, there weren't even any verse numbers and no punctuation as we know it. And there's also a strong suggestion by a number of biblical scholars that the letter to the Hebrews is not actually a letter at all. In fact, many believe it to be a sermon. If you think my sermons can be long, can you imagine sitting through each of the 13 chapters of Hebrews in one sitting? You don't know how good you've got it. (laughs) Uh, The verses that we've heard today, however, do move the writer from one idea to the next. But it's more than just a good segue. In these verses, reveal the importance of God's word to us and our words to God. They reveal the power of scripture and the passion of prayer. Last week, we looked closely at this verse, uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse two, particularly these words. God speaks to us by Jesus. The word of God is not an extra revelation beyond what we know in Jesus. 
The Word of God is not a mysterious, overwhelming power that operates outside of what God does in Jesus. Where God speaks, Jesus is present. And as the writer to the Hebrews goes on in the next chapter, the beginning of chapter 2, he says, Therefore we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. It's important for our ongoing relationship with God to increase in our attention to God's word spoken to us by Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why we've been encouraging you to bring along your Bibles to church on Sundays. Or, if you've forgotten to get out your phone and download a Bible app and read along. And so that helps us to pay closer attention to God's word so that we don't drift away from it, that we become more familiar with it and we continue to find more and new insights in it. Knowing your Bible is important, but knowing why we need to know it, how to use it, and how to apply it is way more important than being able to cite it verse and chapter. Personally, I aspire to be a biblical literalist. I know um, I have explained that in at least one sermon before, and I must admit that I do use the expression for a little bit of shock value, and I do like seeing people's immediate reaction when I say to, it, say to them for the first time that I aspire to be a biblical literalist. But here's what I mean by this expression. To take the Bible literally means a threefold process. To understand the words as they are written and the place that they are written in the wider text of scripture and to understand their meaning. This is why you'll see in sermons, but I also do this in my, on my own devotional time, to go back to the original Greek and the Hebrew to get a better understanding of the actual words. Secondly, to understand as best I can the world in which that those words were written and the reason for them being written. And lastly, to understand as best I can the world in which I'm living in now and hoping to relate and apply these words to my own life and to the lives of those who will turn to me as a preacher of the word for encouragement, for advice, for direction and for challenge. That's what literally, literally means for me. So to take this particular passage literally, we have to engage with some profound imagery. The writer pictures this image of a two-edged sword. 
I'm not sure about you, um, but I haven't seen too many people walking around the town centres wielding two-edged swords recently. So it is an image that is somewhat foreign to us. But as we read through these verses, the image that comes to my mind, rather than a two-edged sword, is a scalpel. A precision instrument that seems to be able to cut along the fine lines between bones and marrow, soul and spirit, thoughts and intentions. This imagery recognises that in ordinary everyday life, we hide much of ourselves. Like the internal workings of the body and the mind beneath the skin, we hide our thoughts and our intentions because, well, they're private. And most of us prefer to keep it that way. Until we choose to make those thoughts and those intentions, those opinions public. Or sometimes we might inadvertently disclose them by what we say or what we do. But we try our best to gauge what to disclose by what we think others might expect of us or of that given situation. People valued their reputations at the time Hebrews was written. And people still value their reputations today. So what Hebrews says about the word of God is disturbing. It removes the options from followers of Jesus for concealment where God is concerned. The things about ourselves that we prefer to keep hidden. The things about ourselves that would never be seen on a social media post. Now, I don't have the skill nor the time uh, to edit my posts, but there's a whole new world of the social media influencer that seems to have emerged in recent years. There's actually a job called a social media influencer. I'm not sure how you get one of those jobs, but people obviously make a, a decent living. Um, but everything that is posted is set up. It's posed for and then edited before it's released to the world. When you think about it, isn't that what we do in our everyday lives when we try to present what we think to be the best version of who we are? But the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that with God, it's not meant to be that way. What would it mean for us to actually realise that God wants access to all of us. Yes, we could go on and talk about that all-seeing or knowing aspect of God's nature who knows everything, but we need to realise that God wants us to release every part of ourselves to God. And reading and being challenged by God's word is like a form of precision surgery, opening things up 
in a matter that a surgeon could see. Now, the goal of some surgical treatment is to bring things to life. I'm sure you've heard the expression exploratory surgery. That the surgeon will go in so that things can be revealed, so they can be treated and improve the life of the patient. And that's what the word of God is designed to do as well for us, according to the writer to the Hebrews. Through God's word spoken to us by Jesus, God opens up the human heart in order to treat it, to recognize our vulnerability in order that we might receive the healing that God offers. When I was uh, training um, in pastoral care, they assigned me to the cardiac ward as one of the wards that I had to go and visit. And in my ministry since, there have been a number of occasions that I've gone to visit um, parishioners in, um, in a cardiac ward because they've just gone through heart surgery. And one of the things that I've noticed that men particularly like to show me their scar, whether I've asked to see it or not. And I can assure you, I've never asked to see it. <laughs> um, my niece was born um, a bit over three years ago with a serious heart condition. And since then, we've followed and supported um, an organisation called Heart Kids. And what you see um, on the Heart Kids social media posts is that these kids are very proud of their scars and quite open to showing them. It made me realise that, that we don't need to hide our scars from Jesus' radical surgery in us. In fact, we should be boldly showing them so others can be encouraged by our experience. But like any surgery, spiritual surgery can be painful. Surgery is painful, right, Dale? If you were here last week trying to see Dale get up and down from preaching, you've probably got a, an inkling. If you see him trying to walk over to the town centre, that's even, even more um, of an example but sometimes when we're digging into the word of God, it can lead us feeling like we're wounded, raw and vulnerable. And from time to time, it should do that. And this is why the next few verses are so healing. Quickly, the author leads us to a place of passionate prayer. An invitation to fall on our knees before the one who has been where we're now living. The one who has known temptation, weakness, suffering, agony, disappointment and wounds so raw they have not yet healed. Because of the intimacy that we are called to with Jesus, we can cry out Honestly, cursing, crying, begging, whinging, confessing our worst and our best of who we are. In the second part of this passage, we're introduced to this idea of Jesus as the great high priest who hears our wailing voices. 
in verse 15, we're told that Jesus sympathizes with us. And the element of sympathy is an essential counterpart to being opened up or exposed. The word sympathy in Greek is pathos. And in in the Greek understanding of the word, it doesn't just mean feeling for someone. It actually means feeling with. And we might translate that in today's uh, terminology as compassion. When people undergo surgery, they want to know that the physician is with them and for them. They need to know that the procedure is ultimately aimed at their well-being. Jesus suffers with us, not just for us. The same aspect of sympathy is central to the passage's depiction of Jesus as high priest. He understands human vulnerability. He experienced it. Jesus' response to human vulnerability is grace, which brings healing. That way of depicting a high priest was extraordinary for the time of writing. In the ancient world, the Jewish community had a high priest whose principal role involved offering a sacrifice within the temple precincts and presiding at public functions. Ministering to the vulnerable, well, that wasn't something that the high priest would ever contemplate doing. It wasn't on their job description. And the same was true of high priests in Greek and Roman cultures. They had high priests who also oversaw sacrifices. But again, sympathy was not part of their role. In fact, they were more removed than most people. Focusing on this sympathetic aspect of Jesus' character invites us to develop a confident trust in him, one in which we can find to be life-giving. The dynamics of this whole passage are enacted every Sunday when you gather for worship in an Anglican church as we say together the words of confession and as the priest stands and absolves your sins. Confession is a response to God's word opening up the heart. The sympathetic word of grace is the response that heals and restores our hearts. The two aspects function together. We see God's judging grace and God's gracious judgment. In a sense, the words of Hebrews 4, 12 to 16 are words about worship. It reminds us that whenever we rightly hear or read the scriptures, God's word will examine us 
and expose our failings. But our confession of sin and brokenness cannot be separated from our confession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Now you might have noticed that I have said nothing about how the Word of God convicts those who don't believe in Jesus. Because I don't believe that this is what the writer of the Hebrews is on about at all. He's talking to those who already follow Jesus. The world has seen, however, the church and Christians use the word of God as a two-edged sword, rightly enough, but to cut others and each other down. But the writer to the Hebrews wants us to use it to open ourselves up so that we can be exposed to God's grace. And if that is the intention for the followers of Jesus, then perhaps the way that we use the word of God on others, particularly those who don't follow Jesus, should be much more focused on exposing them to God's grace in the person of Jesus. Just a little thought and challenge to leave you with. My prayer is that this passage might really cut to the core of who we are and who we need to be and who Jesus is. My prayer is that these words would unsettle us. But my prayer is that a relationship with Jesus will restore and heal us. That we'll be overwhelmed by the grace that is on offer. We won't be able to hide from the power of it. And we won't be able to contain ourselves in sharing that grace with others. The writer to the Hebrews wants us to be vulnerable. It's a hard thing to do in the world we live in, isn't it? But that's how God wants us. That's why Jesus came and why Jesus still needs to come in the same way into our hearts. Let us pray. Lord, as we wrestle with these words this morning, help them to really sink deep into our hearts and minds, our lives, our very beings. Help us to willingly expose our hiddenness to you in the knowledge that your love while challenging and convicting us of the things we've done wrong, will embrace us and welcome us home with the arms of loving grace. And as we receive that grace, help us to be bearers of it. So what the world sees as the actions of your followers is actions of grace. Amen.